Hello, welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, we are coming to you from the White House, at least I am, uh, in the wake of the president's, we don't call it a State of the Union address, but his uh, speech to the joint session. And let me tell you, it's a brand new White House here this morning. Everything is different, right? It's a, a different president, a, a different mm. tone, a, a new day. Uh, what They're smiling over there? Is that what's going on? Are they happy about something? Well, um, they do seem a little energized. I, you know, I, I don't think you're being entirely serious, Rick, but, uh, but let's face it. That was, a, uh, it was certainly a different speech. And I want to say we have a very big powerhouse politics today because we're going to be talking to uh, two newsmakers who I think are especially relevant in the wake of that speech. First and foremost, we'll be talking to former, the former next vice president of the United States, Joe Lieberman, uh, in town for the new labels, uh, I'm sorry, no labels convention. Uh, we're going to be talking to Joe Lieberman and also uh, talking to Steve King, uh, a congressman from Iowa and one of those that has led the fight for the harshest of hard lines on the immigration issue. And boy, are we eager to ask him about this idea that Donald Trump uh, floated about uh, immigration reform. That amnesty. Was, it would be amnesty under another world. I found an old clip where Jeff Sessions said 2017 will be the year of amnesty. Now, he said this when he thought Hillary Clinton would win and that Paul, that Paul Ryan would be the Speaker of the House. So I don't think that's quite what he had in mind. But that was an intriguing float because that, that was one of the few pieces of actual new policy that he hinted at here. Other than that, you take that piece aside, this was different marketing of a, of a product that we have covered as particularly, maybe even harshly partisan at times. And, and I think that's the, the way that this was described, the way that this speech came across and the way it was received. I'm curious your take, John. It, it strikes me that this is an indication of the, the possible power of Donald Trump if he finds a message that doesn't get in his own way. Well, one wonders if we could go back 41 days or so, if this had been a speech, some variation of this, these themes, uh, this approach, this tone, if this had been the speech that we had heard at the inauguration and that had set the agenda uh, for the first month of the Trump presidency, would we be in a different place? Because this was, I, I, I said it Tuesday night. Um, took a little bit of heat for it, Rick. Uh, not not from you, but uh, th- this was Donald Trump at his most presidential we have ever seen him, I think, by far, and also the most effective speech he has ever given. Now, a lot of people uh, took issue with that. Um, my question was always, well, can you give me your nomination for the most <laughs> presidential speech you've heard from him or the most effective? I, and I don't, I don't think you're going to find one. I, I think this was a, a, a really striking start to this next phase of the presidency. We talked a little last week about how his his attention now turns to the legislative side of things and what he can possibly do that is going to actually get the buy-in of Congress. His audience is different than it was uh, five, what was, that? What was that beat, by the way? What was that? I believe that's, have... that's called iNews, and it's not even my machine that I'm working near. I but mean, that's... my goodness. <laughs> this that is was behind a... the scenes. This is real stuff here. This is how news gets made. So if you know iNews, you know that beat. Uh, if, if, this, if this was about him trying to reach out to Democrats or something like that, well, we can quibble as to whether it had that kind of – that kind of effect. The most important thing I think that he could do in this speech at this moment is to get his party on board, not just united behind his agenda, excited again about that agenda and reminding them what it is that he ran on, what it is that he 
represents to voters, providing some of the framework, some of the policy details, just some kind of guidance. They've been flying blind on Capitol Hill for the last five, six weeks as the president has done unilateral things and then go off on Twitter rants. And now we find out that the, the era of small fights, of, of petty grievances, that's over now. And if Donald Trump can, can actually end that, that is a, a much different dynamic. All right. We are now joined on the line by Senator Joe Lieberman, of course, the former senator from the great state of Connecticut, former attorney general from the great state of Connecticut, the former next vice president of the United States, almost twice Democrat, almost Republican, and joining us now uh, as, uh, as one of the leaders of No Labels. Senator Lieberman, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for that uh, memorable introduction. Hey, I, you know, I feel like I was there with you through all of it. So, uh, so it's, it's great. Were, it's great were. to have you back. Um, Thank you. So, so I, I got to get get your take on uh, first and foremost what we heard. Now, and I, I want to talk about what you're doing here and what it means to be no right. labels in in this in this right. day and age. But what was your take of that speech of the president's uh, speech to the joint session? Well, uh, there was a lot of it I really liked. I mean, and it's part of no labels, which is all about don't don't put the label of Democrat or Republican or liberal or conservative first, put the national interest first, and figure out how to do what you know Reagan and O'Neill and Clinton and Gingrich did, uh, but negotiate some compromises to get things done. So last night, the president uh, obviously issued a call for bipartisanship. He he said, let's stop the trivial conflicts and and a line that could have been written by the people at no labels he said something like you know every every problem can be solved everything that's uh, uh, broken can be fixed and um uh so uh i thought it was very hopeful i thought it actually had uh, i know i'm not the only one to say this more the tone of an inaugural address than his inaugural address had and i hope it is the inauguration of uh, of a different kind of a approach. Will, will it last? Will the president stick will it, with it? Will, will he be able to unite Republicans behind him? And, uh, and because they're not united now about his program, and will he be able to draw in some Democrats? You know, only time will tell. But uh, I, a, there was a little hope there last night. What did, what did you make of him starting off the speech? Uh, first of all, with with a nod to Black History Month, but also. Uh, you know, to condemning um, the anti-Semitic attacks we have seen over the last couple of months, the attacks on the uh, on the Jewish community centers or the threats and, and the attacks on the cemeteries. Um, this was something that had a lot of people just scratching their heads, something that the president was so incredibly slow in responding to. Yeah. Um, what, yeah. What, what did you make of that? So, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you first that I just took it at face value and appreciated that he said it. Um, but second is, um, wh- why did he say it? Maybe he looked back and um, realized that uh, he was too slow uh, to respond um, earlier to uh, acts of bigotry and, and hatred. And, and that part of, if he, if he means what he says about uniting the country and believing in love, et cetera, and not hate, that uh, he can't remain silent at, at moments of crisis, particularly when uh, he's regularly, uh, you know, tweeting on a lot of other subjects which may seem less important. So I, I don't know, I don't know exactly why it was there, but I thought, in its way, it um, created a kind of uh, an opening that that gained him some credibility, maybe even opened some uh, um, ears and and minds. 
even hearts to what he what he said afterward. So I want to talk about what you're hearing with the folks who are coming in town for this No Labels conference, because it comes at a particular time. Donald Trump uh, won the stamp of approval from from No Labels, uh, along with a couple of other candidates about a year ago during the during the, the, the primary season. It, it, what, what's the sense from the folks that you're talking to? Uh, optimistic, pessimistic? It seems like we're in such a polarized town right now. Yeah. So let me let me first say that what happened um, during the election is that we asked all the candidates if they would essentially sign a no-labels pledge that did um, bring the members of both parties' uh, leadership that is, and, and have them work on one of four goals we itemized, which were sort of broad goals about the economy and Social Security, et cetera. And uh, he was one of those that said yes, so um, we appreciated that. But we didn't endorse anybody. I, I will tell you that um, the you know the first uh, weeks of the Trump presidency, and frankly until last night, and again we'll see what happens, uh, seemed to be um, more divided than ever. It's almost like what started – well, I guess under President Clinton and then uh, on under President Bush and then uh, President Obama, where there was a you didn't just oppose some somebody on the other side. You hated them. You blamed all of America's problems. If in anything, if anything, it seemed to reach a fevered pitch during the first weeks of the Trump administration. And this no labels group, this was this was a group formed in 2010 to, to, as a beginning of a response to all the problems we're talking about failure to work across party lines, a failure to solve problems, failure to take advantage of opportunities. And um, this today's an amazing day for the group because there's more than 800 people here from all around the country that came on their own uh, expense. And um, they're kind of, uh, I mean, we, we say they're a new center, they're center-right, they're center-left dependent. And, to, and what's fascinating to me I may quote the, quote the old movie. They're also mad as hell. It's not just the right, the right and the left that's mad as hell. It's, it's this group in the middle that really wants the government to start working again. And um, at, uh, a lot of sessions today about substance and politics. And then tomorrow the, uh, the group is going up to Capitol Hill. They, they'll all be wearing T-shirts saying fix, not fight. Those who are a little bolder have a T-shirt that says govern or go. And they're going to meet with their members of Congress and uh, tell them they're there. They're going to start coming out to their town hall meetings, just like people in the left and right do. And they're going to be demanding something different, which is uh, work with the other party to get something done. So uh, they came feeling a certain sense of crisis. They still feel that, although I think last night's speech made them hopeful, but uncertain that maybe the president would uh, actually act in his own way. Uh, to to uh, to do the things that no labels uh, would like the government to do. We'll see. It, it, just, I, I, it strikes me that I, that everything's in the follow up, right? I mean, you, you have a speech yeah. last night that suggests a different tone, but it's hard right. for me to square that at least. And you tell tell me where where we're wrong on this. It's hard for me to square that with everything else virtually that we've heard from President Trump and everything else we've heard at this right. moment. It doesn't seem yeah. like a no labels guy. No, it was a real turn. Uh, and and that's the question. That's why if I if I I mean I talked to some people here about it. With, uh, I think I mentioned we have more than eight hundred people here. Um, they uh, they're skeptical because they, they it, what he said last night. The positive stuff I talked about was uh, not consistent with what what uh, the dominant themes of the first weeks of uh, his administration. So uh, they're not sure it's, it's going to be uh, followed up and how long he'll stay with it. But you know my hope, and I, I'm not sure either. 
But um, my hope is that uh, he's gotten enough positive reaction, including from places he hasn't normally gotten it um, in the in the beginning of his administration, that he may just uh, stick to this. Um, uh, and, I, and I said to this when I did the keynote speech uh, this afternoon that uh, they can have an effect if they go to their member of Congress, tell them they're here, uh, they're going to follow them at home, they're going to come out, and uh, they'll support them if they work across party lines, and, uh, and they'll oppose them in the next election uh, if they don't. But um, you're right. I mean, you're right to be skeptical. Uh, and uh, put me down as hopeful, but uh, tempered by skepticism also. What, what do you make the, the Democratic posture here, though, which seems to be one of total opposition to virtually anything he has to say? I mean, I don't, I don't know if you, if you saw uh, Chuck Schumer on the, on the morning shows. Uh, it couldn't, didn't seem to be able to utter anything complimentary about the speech whatsoever. Um, I mean, not even to say, you know, fine words in part, but the specifics, you know, or we got to see and we were doubtful because of the wreck. I mean, it was just, it was just negative from the start. And you, you just get the sense that Democrats, and maybe for good reason, I mean, that's what I'd like to hear you, you say, I mean, maybe for good reason, think that that there's that there's basically no point in trying to work with this president. Yeah, okay. I I think that's not a good strategy to follow. In other words, it's kind of a, a thoughtless uh, kind of reflexive resistance. I mean, I prefer to take it one by one. Uh, and if you disagree with what President Trump is trying to do on an issue, then the Democrats uh, should oppose him. Uh, but uh, if they just go into the resistance. Uh, some some things could, could happen that they're not happy about, uh, and, and therefore I think they should find occasions to uh, to come to the table. I mean, I, I always think if somebody gives you a reason, uh, there's an old uh, Henry L. Stimson quote from the Second World War. I was not a, um, an adult then; I just read it in history. <laughs> Fair enough. Are you sure? Okay, good, good. Uh, yeah, yeah. That the the best sometimes the best way to make a, a person trustworthy is to trust them. To a certain extent, I would paraphrase that and say sometimes to make a person better or a leader better than you, you worry he is, is to take something hopeful that he said and uh, go with it and try to and give it praise and hope that it leads uh, to more of that. So um, I, I don't think if the, if the Democratic Party is just a resistance party that uh, it's going to lead to uh, anything good for the party. I, uh, I, I, so I, I hope that changes. And I um, what I hope the president will do is to reach out not only to Chuck Schumer, or Chris, the, the, the emotion in the party, in the Democratic Party today, is resistance. The loss in the November election was traumatic. Uh, I understand that. And I supported Hillary Clinton. And I was shocked. But, you know, it's, it, it, here's where we are. we got a health care system that, that, in my opinion, needs the Affordable Care Act, but fixed. Uh, we got an immigration system that needs to be reformed. We could use tax reform to stimulate the economy. And, and just to stand back and, and carp and, and oppose is not really, in my opinion, a, a winning uh, philosophy or a winning political strategy. So I hope the Democrats will get over that soon. It, it takes two to tango. The president has to reach out. He reached out generally last night. I think he's got to reach out more directly to Schumer, Pelosi, Schumer is more likely, and then he's, then he's got to start reaching out to individual Democrats who he thinks might um, might want to work with him. Senator Lieberman, what did you make of that extraordinary and emotional moment uh, with, the, with the widow of, the, of the, the, the fallen Navy SEAL? 
last night. I know uh, your friend John McCain, and I think you echoed these comments in, in talking about how there's no way that you can really call that mission an unqualified 100% success. But did that feel genuine to you? Did it feel exploitative? Did it feel appropriate in the moment to, to recognize the service that way? And, and the claim from the president that that valuable intelligence was gained, is that is that important as part of this discussion? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it has some value. I tell you, I, I thought it was a, a, a genuine and very emotional moment. I mean, this, as far as I can recall, it was President Reagan that started to introduce people with stories who were in the in the balcony. Um, but uh, Lenny Scott, I, I, I responded uh, more to that whole part of the speech as a tribute to our military and what uh, and their families. Rather than um, a sort of evaluation of the, the the merit of the raid in, in Yemen, I mean, obviously, we didn't get the target we wanted. I, I take it uh, uh, that it's true that we got some intelligence, but the reality is that this woman lost her husband, and and it, it was a, just a, a, a very emotional, genuine moment. To why it was about her, not really about President Trump. So uh, we want to let you go, but I have one more question before you do. Um, you're spending a lot of time hanging out with a, uh, a certain former governor of the state of Utah, John Huntsman, who's also involved in the No, the no Labels uh, effort. And uh, I, I'm reading today speculation that uh, he may be in line to be President Trump's ambassador to Russia. You, what, what, what's your take? Well, I literally can't confirm or deny. I mean, I, I don't know. I've, 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 heard, I've, I've been reading the same rumors today. John, John is a dear friend. He's very. He's a wonderful human being. He's also a, um, a really a gifted public servant. And um, you know, this is a. I mean, the president would be fortunate indeed to have John Huntsman agree to be ambassador to Russia because of how important and. Um, and difficult the relationship with Russia has been and will uh, likely be. And it, it, it's another step in a, in a truly remarkable career of John Huntsman's. As you know, he was ambassador to Singapore and then ambassador to China. He was U.S. trade representative at one point and now um, to be ambassador to Russia. He, he's, a, he's a genuine public servant. I mean, there, there are a lot of rational reasons why one would not do this. Uh, go to Russia. If if he says he will, uh, it's it's because he really feels a call to uh, to service. So uh, I don't know whether it's real or not, but now that it's on the wires, probably we'll hear for sure soon. Would you be open to serving in any capacity if if, if President Trump asked you? I mean, we I, I, we could sit well, here and speculate on a, probably a dozen yeah, different jobs for you, but but yeah, we're... you know, I'm I'm I was in elective office for forty years. I'm I'm really having a great time. Uh, out in the private sector and, and doing a lot of public sector uh, stuff like uh, no labels. So I'm not looking for anything. I'd always consider something if, if I was asked. But um, I'm not yearning <laughs> to go back in. <laughs> All right, Joe Lieberman. All right, always a pleasure to, to talk to you. Thank you Thank for joining you. us on Powers Politics. Bye-bye. So there you have it, Rick. Uh, I think we have a definite uh, headline there. Uh-huh. He 
doesn't rule out working for President Trump here in the administration. And I love this. I literally cannot <laughs> confirm or deny about about Huntsman. It sounds like it's happening. We'll see. We'll see. He can't, he can't confirm or deny, but then he went on to explain why it would be a good thing what and, why, a, and why Huntsman uh, is just the kind of guy that would be willing to do it. Can you um, imagine that job, by the way? I mean, Ambassador to Russia. Talk, Russia. About your, talk about your thankless task these days. I by mean, the way, what's the thing? I, I, know that, I know that Governor Huntsman is an incredibly talented and interesting guy. Um, um, he's, he's, he's a bit of, a, of an Asia specialist. I mean, is, is, is the theory, well, of course, you know, Russia, is, a, a lot Asia of it's too. in Asia. Yeah, is yeah, that yeah. the idea? <laughs> he knows or the is region. it, you know, one, he did one former commun- uh, one communist country. Why can't he do a formerly communist country? I mean, is it... Is it uh, <laughs> What's the sure, I guess so. I guess so. I, 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 I think there's something interesting also in, in Senator Lieberman's optimism out of that speech because there was – look, Donald Trump does not scream no labels. He puts labels on everything, right? So if there's follow-up out of this new tone and if this lasts more than like a news cycle or you know until Twitter gets reloaded – there's a reason for optimism for people like Joe Lieberman, for centrist Democrats, moderates, independents to, uh, out, of, out of this White House. But that is a sharp – that would be a sharp turn from what we've seen over the first five, six weeks. Well, we are always in favor of sharp turns here on Powerhouse Politics. It makes life more interesting. Well, Rick, we've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we have got Congressman Steve King to find out what does he think about this potentially kinder, gentler Donald Trump on immigration. Hey, it's Rebecca Jarvis. Have you ever wondered how someone created a company from nothing or built a career from the ground up? Well, I have. So I'm finding out on my new podcast, No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis, where each week I speak with an exceptional woman to see how she did it and hear the stuff you won't read in their bios. The podcast is No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis, and you can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Just search No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis and hit subscribe. See you there. All right, joining us now on Powerhouse Politics, Congressman Steve King from Iowa. Thank you, Congressman King, for joining us. Be bad. I'm very glad to be with you today. Uh, it was a interesting speech, big moment in the, in the in the Trump presidency, no doubt about it. I wanted to ask you though, just just to just to rewind a little bit. Um, the, uh, the the president, of course, had the uh, the lunch with network anchors, uh, uh, you know, hours before the speech. And surprised a lot of people, I think even a lot of people on his own staff, uh, when he said that he's open to the possibility of immigration reform, if there could be true compromise on all sides, and actually even said that he was um, open to the idea of citizenship, a path to citizenship for the dreamers, um, you know, the, 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 the folks, of course, who, who came here as young children. What was your sense of that? Were you surprised? Well, I, I didn't actually read the articles on that, although I had a few questions from the press uh, regarding that. But when I listened to the president's speech last night, I, I heard no flavor of um, any kind of comprehensive immigration reform or citizenship or amnesty. And I'm pretty confident that that wasn't going to happen in his speech because of the guests that he had in the gallery last night, including Jamil Shaw, whose son was killed by an illegal alien that should have been deported along with the families of um, officers Oliver and Davis, uh, who were there also. Uh, so I thought that the speech that he gave last night was um, was exactly consistent with all that he has said about immigration throughout the nomination and the, the general election campaign. And I think that 
if um, the discussions about citizenship for people who are unlawfully present in America is amnesty, and you cannot restore the respect for the rule of law and kind of and simultaneously grant amnesty to people who have broken it. So what would happen if Donald Trump actually came out and, and, and publicly proposed that and pushed for it? I mean, here's somebody who's got obviously a lot of uh, credibility with those that take a tough line on immigration. What, 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 what would happen if he, if he made a tactical change in his position on that? Well, I think that I think his base would leave him almost immediately, and I mean that's when he always started out his his campaign. The thing that gave Donald Trump traction was enforcing immigration law and, of course, building a wall. And so, if if he turned around and did a essentially a one eighty on that, then not only would the conservatives start to leave him, but I don't know that anybody. Had, in the foreseeable future, could run for the presidency on restoring the rule of law or securing our border and enforcing our immigration laws. There would be a lot lost if uh, the president went down that path. And to be clear to your mind, that path, any kind of a legalized status, that equals amnesty, right? That, that's been the position that you've had for some time. And I think that is that an important point of clarification to you, or am I, am I right in characterizing it that way? No, no, you're right. And, and I've told the narrative that Back in, in 1986, I watched the amnesty debate that was taking place under the Reagan administration, and I was hopeful that either the House or the Senate would vote it down. Instead, they passed it. And when I went to Ronald Reagan's desk, his cabinet gave him counsel, and Ronald Reagan signed the Amnesty Act. And when that came through on the radio, I was in my construction office that day. I had believed all along that Ronald Reagan understood that principle that you can't restore the rule of law and grant amnesty, but he signed it. And uh, that was a that, that's the point that that was just a crushing disappointment to me that Ronald Reagan did not see that principle clearly enough. And I've since had this conversation with his attorney general, uh, Ed Meese the third, and um, Ed Meese counseled the president Reagan to sign the Amnesty Act. He regrets it, and Ronald Reagan also regretted it. Um, you know, near the end of his life. So I hope that that rule, that lesson that Ronald Reagan learned is one that uh, Donald Trump also understands today. So you go through that speech last night, and, and I'm, I'm, I actually, uh, the thought went through my mind of how people like Steve King are hearing it. Because it's, even, leave aside immigration for, for a moment, uh, because he didn't really touch on it that much, but paid leave for, uh, for child care, uh, mandated by the government, uh, tax credits for health care, essentially a new entitlement uh, that would built in to, to preserve people that are on Obamacare, a trillion dollars in new infrastructure investments funded at least in part by the federal government. Are you sitting there thinking, what, what's going on here? Is this, is this really a Republican president? Well, I wasn't able to stand in the ovation for the paid leave for child care because that to me says borrowing money from China in order to pay people to babysit our children here. Um, so I wasn't very enthusiastic about that, even though I was sitting right down below Ivanka, and I, that's her idea. And uh, the tax, tax credit piece of this, uh, and I've argued against this uh, today, uh, throughout the day, that if we go down that path, those would actually mean refund, refundable tax credits. That says send a check to people or let them at least direct it to an insurance policy. And if you do that, uh, then it doesn't take very long for Obamacare to be rebuilt. Uh, back into statute. Uh, but when I heard him say the investment in infrastructure, and he, and he said capital, both private and public capital, uh, that gave me a measure of hope that um, if it's, if it's going to be some private capital invested in that. Uh, so we can find some ways to work around that. 
But all the rest of the speech, gentlemen, was terrific. And I gave it a very high grade, and I, everybody I talked to did too. And, and what was it about it that you thought, uh, I mean, why, what, 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 why a high grade? Well, it started out, first of all, it gets a civil rights issue. And uh, that, that took um, some of the wind out of the sails of the people that were going to be opposed to him. And he addressed also the cemetery vandalism, and that said something to especially the Jewish community. And, and as he went on down the line, he hit note after note that almost all the rest of the speech had been into his previous speeches. But I thought it was very, very well put together, and uh, that um, he held his campaign promises together. He listed some of the accomplishments that had been reached so far. But the, the very highest point in the speech as when he recognized the widow of the Navy SEAL, Ryan Owens. Um, and that moment there was, I think, the most dramatic moment that I've seen in any, I'll call it, State of the Union address, or any joint uh, address speech to a joint session of Congress that I'd ever seen. I, and it, it hit everybody in the heart there on the floor last night. I, I, I was struck by it as well, and I, I think I even said it, that it was the emotional high point of, uh, of the night. I am struck, though, by some, some of the reaction that I'm reading about from even people in the military community who say they think it was exploiting uh, the, the service, the sacrifice, and a widow of, uh, of someone who's still processing the death of her husband, the tragic death. Did, was there any part of you that, that, that thought, we, you know, maybe this is a little too soon for a moment like this? No part of me thought that. Um, I, I saw the look on her face, as I think all of America did, um, the net, there's no question that the grief runs deep, but there's also, I thought, uh, a glow of pride for her husband and for his life, his, his commitment and his memory. And uh, I know that there was a political backdrop story to this, that some had criticized the operation in Yemen, and uh, I think that was political criticism. How could anybody know other than the, the people that were involved in it in our in our uh, defense community and our commander-in-chief, uh, but also when uh, Ryan Owens' father didn't want to meet with uh, President Trump at, at um, Dover, I believe it was. And so that got turned around to a very high positive. And I think if you ask uh, Corinne Owens in one year or five years or ten or in two or three generations from now, they will look back on last night with great pride in their family. Certainly an incredible moment. Uh, before we go, let, let me just want to get back and clarify something on the idea of these refundable tax credits uh, for health insurance as a way to uh, uh, provide uh, essentially a subsidy for, for, for low-income uh, individuals to get health insurance after Obamacare, uh, sub, after the Obamacare subsidies go away. This is kind of a central piece of what Paul Ryan uh, is, is, is pushing as, as the replacement for Obamacare. And the president, as Rick mentioned, uh, endorsed it in the speech last night. Is it, is it your sense that this cannot pass because of Republican opposition in, in Congress? Do you think this is, that, that, that this is a non-starter? Where do, you, where do you think it's going? Well, from what I'm picking up today, uh, it, it seems like it's going to be difficult to pass a health care reform that's got refundable tax credits in it because a growing number of members are starting to realize what this is now. I know when I first came to this Congress, when they said tax credits, I didn't know that meant refundable tax credits. And so I didn't ask that second question. And I might have um, I might have taken some earlier uh, stands stronger than I did until I got used to the vernacular. And it didn't take me very long, but a couple of days, I suppose. And so now we're sitting in this place where if, if we have to put money out up front to fund the health insurance policies, what it really says is that 
you're, you're, that there's an entitlement to each individual in America to own their own health insurance policy. And that was a mistake of Obamacare. There should not be that entitlement. We need to make sure that we take care of people, and we can't let them um, not have care. But we can do things with public health clinics. We can we can keep all the premiums cheaper if we if we say no federal mandates. Let people buy insurance across state lines. They can buy those policies then relatively cheap, and and let the market sort this out and, and let the health savings accounts expand. There is a smaller number of people that get their individual health insurance. Much of that comes through the employers today. So I, I think that they've gone they've gone too far with this. And uh, we need to make a clean break with Obamacare, do the full 100% repeal of Obamacare, and then send the components of reform one at a time from the House over to the Senate. And then if they need to be packaged together, let Mitch McConnell package them together over there. All right, Congressman Steve King laying down a uh, uh, an interesting line here for the debate to go forward here, particularly on, on Obamacare. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks Congressman. Thanks a lot for the conversation today, gentlemen. I appreciate it. All right, Thank you care. so much. So, uh, Rick, I got to say, this is going to get interesting. This sure. is going to get really interesting. I mean, Steve King is, uh, you know, he is at the the, the far right of, of, of that Republican uh, conference in the House. He is somebody who has been a strong supporter of Donald Trump, among the strongest supporter, particularly uh, among the strongest supporters, particularly on immigration. And you heard him say that if Trump goes wobbly on this, he's going to lose his base. And um, it sounds like he's prepared to fight the president and the congressional Republican leadership on health care as well. It is a strange time for many Republicans. I think he's 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 definitely right in saying that the reception uh, for that speech was mostly positive and he did a pretty effective job of rallying his base. But when you look at immigration, when you look at what he's doing on health care. Uh, when you when you, when you start to dig in and what it might mean for infrastructure spending, even though he's supportive of the idea of leveraging public and private money, you start to realize again what I think everyone from uh, from the in the conservative movement was basically saying a year ago, which is that Donald Trump isn't really a conservative, and there's going to be a lot of skepticism around this. And the way that he busts through the same reason that Joe Lieberman is optimistic is why Steve King right now is a little bit uh, a little bit uneasy with some of the things he's seeing. No doubt. Well. Rick, we're going to track it. We're going to go back and see what uh, who else is going to be there with uh, with with King on these issues. I, I got to tell you, um, when you get into the details on this stuff, it gets a lot dicier. And as we've talked about, we are now entering a new phase of the of the Trump presidency. We're beyond you know signing executive orders and the like, and we are into the point where you actually have to get something to pass Congress. And they were unified in general praise of that speech, but they aren't unified on the specifics. That's right. And uh, <laughs> it's not going it, it, to— And you pass specifics, by the way. That's what you pass. That's right. And, and you're not going to be able to do this, have this debate without those specifics. And the, the, it's been a, a period of benign neglect for Republicans, conservatives in Congress. They've been able to do what they want for the last five or six weeks. That's starting to change because you're starting to see the meetings. You're starting to see the principles laid out. And, and you're right. There, there, there are lots of, lots of conservatives in the House who fear Ryan Care as much as they do Obamacare or Obamacare light, or they, they don't like a Trump care that, that comes in somewhere else. They don't like a comprehensive immigration reform bill uh, that, uh, that, that, that suddenly this White House is making noises about. It is, it is as, as the president looks to consolidate the base, you're going to see this, the, these signs of, of worry emerge. No doubt. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for powerhouse politics. We will be back next week. I want to thank 
our very capable producers, David Rind and Avery Miller. You kids are better us. than very capable yet. Yeah, I, I mean, know. I, I mean, <laughs> tremendous, tremendous. Uh, I mean, really two of the greatest individuals in the world, right? It's the Trump era. You can do that. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Remember, sign up for us wherever you get your podcasts, and we really appreciate it when you when you uh, do a review. And tweet at us, at Rick Klein or at John Carl. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>